This episode is dedicated to Mariko Kibi, Brooks Holden, Daniel Mitchell, and Disaffected Amoeba, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters, and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. Did you hear from your uncle? Oh, God, my uncle. Now, now I was just joking about that. I was joking about that. It's more my dad, but he's dead, so fuck him, right? Thanks, <laughs> me. <laughs> so family reunions are fun times, huh? Oh, my God, I bored him like the plague. <laughs> so, but, hey, listen, if you're a UFC fighter and you don't have some kind of daddy issues or kind of fucking issues, like, what are you doing here getting punched for money? What's wrong with you? Go to school. Be a, go to college. Grab a microphone. Be a journalist. <laughs> This is Sam. This is Team Southpaw. And this is Fight Study. We brought together members of the Southpaw Discord server to discuss UFC Fight Night Reyes versus Prohaska. If you don't know about the Southpaw Discord, it's a private chat server that you gain access to, along with a list of other benefits when you support us on Patreon. What's also unique about today's panel, especially in the MMA space, is that it's an all-Black and Asian solidarity panel. With the prevalence of anti-Black and anti-Asian sentiment in MMA, highlighted by UFC 261, and all the racist posts many of us saw, you might find the way we talk and think about MMA is not the norm you see in the mostly white and conservative to liberal MMA media space. But having a counter-narrative is most definitely a good thing. Now, UFC Fight Night, Reyes vs. Prohaska, is an event we all got excited for, not only because of the women's MMA fights and the return of Loma Lukbunmi, but also because RN All Day, aka your boy Lex, got us so hyped for Yuri Prohaska. He also wrote a fantastic preview for the main event, which you can still find and read for free on Patreon and Ko-Fi. But for the listeners, RN All Day, can you give us a recap on Prohaska and his career up until this fight? Yes, I can. Um, Yuri Prohaska started training martial arts when he was in secondary school in Brno, Czech Republic. 
Um, he started in karate and then eventually around the age of 16 transitioned to Muay Thai, claiming a national title in 2011 when he was 19 years old. Um, after that, in 2012, he joined Gladiator Fighting Championship, which is the premier um, martial arts organization in the Czech Republic, where they do use the cage, which is where some of his cage experience comes from. Um, in 10 fights, he became the champ in 2013. Um, and then in 2015, he transitioned into Ryzen Fighting Federation in Japan, where he participated in the Light Heavyweight Grand Prix, where he beat current Bellator champion Vadim Nemkov and then lost to King Mo in the same night. In 2019, he became Ryzen champion after beating King Mo in a rematch and defended the title against Fabio Maldonado and C.B. Dalloway. And then in 2020, he signed to the UFC in December and fought Volkan Ozdemir. And that gets us to the UFC. Can you tell us the backstory about his nickname? Ah, <laughs> so apparently while training at Jetsam Gym in the Czech Republic, um, when he was a teenager, the coaches called out one time and asked for a fighter named Denisa, which is the Czech version of Denise. And he just absentmindedly said yes. And so from that day on, they called him Denisa. And so that's where his nickname comes from. <laughs> um, <laughs> he mentioned it in an interview recently, actually. It was really funny because when they first asked him, he seemed reluctant to tell them. He just said, oh, it means nothing. And then he kind of launched into the story, which I thought was very funny. It's like one of the rare legitimate nicknames because you know, most nicknames are given to you as kind of a playful jest. In MMA, the nicknames are not really that. They're like some gimmicky branding name that the fighters themselves come up with to sound intimidating. Whereas this is just his real nickname that the gym people came up with. Exactly. Can you also give us a little history about his finishing uh, rate? Because that's probably very unique, even in MMA. Yeah, in 28 wins, Yuri Prohaska has finished 27 of them for a finishing rate of 96.5%. That includes 25 knockouts and two submissions. So you wrote the preview for this fight. So did the fight go as you expected? In a lot of ways, yes, it did. Um, I think Yuri came out and used the feints that I thought he would in his shoulders and in his, um, his hips when it comes to front kicking with his rear leg. So that made itself apparent. And then also, like I thought, uppercuts made themselves apparent. Um, and just in general, his really, really high pace. One thing that I said is, if chins hold, we may have a cardio battle on our hands. And that's sort of what happened. Um, he came out, and they both set, and he set a ridiculous pace. And Reyes was able to keep pace for the first round, but then began to slow as time went on during the second round and got caught against the cage. Um, which is what eventually I thought would happen at some point. And I was both rooting for and predicting Prohaska by KO. One thing I did notice is he didn't do any of the look-away stuff that he did against Ostemir. It seemed like he took it much more seriously, where against Ostemir, I mean, he took it seriously, but he would try to feint or throw Ostemir off by looking away or sometimes look away and talk to somebody else, like an imaginary friend, to try to get Ostemir to attack him. Whereas this, he seemed much more disciplined and even like weird hand gestures go. He did them, but... Not as much as he did against Ostemir. Yeah, it's very much what his um, coaches promised in an interview on his YouTube page. They said, what we're coming into this fight with and looking for is a professional, what we're promising you is a professional fighter with a professional attitude. Um, I think during that Ozdemir fight, in lots of ways, he wasn't giving Ozdemir a lot of respect. I think he respected him, but I think he also felt his power and felt like he could take it and he didn't have to respect that Ozdemir could knock him out. 
and that kind of made itself apparent how he got a little bit careless. But yeah, Dominic Reyes is no slouch and carries a lot of power, and so he couldn't make those same mistakes. And I think as he climbs higher up the ladder, the margin for error is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, for people unfamiliar with Ryzen, do they allow elbows? They do not allow elbows, but they do allow kicks and knees to a grounded opponent. So that was one thing that we were discussing in the Discord is because he is so creative, now that he's allowed to do elbows, most definitely he was going to throw elbows because it just seemed like something he would add. Like if you allow him to do more things, his creative mind will do more things. So speaking of elbows then, Jodeci Joestar, as a professional Muay Thai fighter with international experience, what were your thoughts on this fight? Uh, well, I wasn't really that familiar with Jerry until your boy pointed him out. And then I decided to go like look up his last fight, which I peaked at, but I never got to finish. And then look up his record after that. And even like my brothers who don't really know a lot about martial arts, when they heard his record and finishing rate, they were like, "Dude, what type of record is that? Like he finishes like every fight. What the heck? I don't. You don't see that a lot." And his style is like, man, it's hard to see a guy at that weight class have a set of pace like that. Like you see. You see fights, you see a guy move like that and like, you know, you can see that in like the 140s, 130s, but like at 205 to have a guy like move around at that pace, like, and Dominic Reyes did good too. He caught him with like clean counter shots that fight you could hear, but that spinning back elbow, like that was probably one of the cleanest spinning back elbows I've seen in MMA, Muay Thai, whatever. Like that thing was really nice, man. I was super impressed with this fight. Prohaska's base style, like where he came up, is in Muay Thai. Yeah. Would you say this is a type of Muay Thai style that you've seen before? Or is it like something you've seen with European fighters? Or is this all just him? I'm good. Yeah. Personally, I've never seen anybody fight like that in Muay Thai at all, let alone just, I mean, I haven't even seen people fight like that in kickboxing, to be fair. Even looking at it and looking at his previous fights, I'm like, man, how do you like, how do you spar? (laughs) for that like how do you prepare for that how are you going to find a sparring partner that can mimic that type of pace at that weight class like that's hard to find that's not i mean there's a reason why his finishing rate is damn near close to 100 percent for a reason like even the announce i mean even the commentators are saying like yeah you know his hands are low he needs to but i'm like as i'm watching i'm like i think that's just his stance man like yeah his hands are low but that's that's how we train. <laughs> Not a lot of people can do much with it, as we saw this past weekend. So I don't know. It's very interesting. Like, I'm, he really intrigues me, especially as somebody who's come up, you know, in quote unquote traditional Muay Thai. So, like, you know, if I showed if I showed him to like, you know, a Muay Thai fighter, they'd be like, "What the hell is he doing? Like, what is that?" <laughs> but I'm like, "Nah, well, it works, man. <laughs> like, I don't know what you want me to say. It clearly works for him." He fights much more like an end boss in an anime. It looks a lot like uh, for people who watch Kenken Ashura, <laughs> which is on Netflix, or have read the uh, manga. There's a guy in there, Fang of Mitsudo, Kano Ajito. And he has this style he calls the, the formless style, which looks just like that really crouched with his hands down. And from there, his whole thing is like, you don't know what's coming because he looks so bizarre and it doesn't look like a fighting stance. And uh, Prohaska fights very much like that. Like, my wife said he fights like a video game avatar. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's a great description. I mean, when even when you said that 
he's a King and Ashua character. I was like, I gotta look this guy up real quick. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, it makes sense. Now I get it now. That makes sense. That's a great description. Like he kind of gives me from like if we're talking like anime, he kind of gives me like Brian Hawk vibes, but not as like, you know, psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about Brian Hawk from Hajime no Ippo. Yeah, like that hands that super low, like hands down stance, but like he can still hit you with straight shots that will put you to sleep. That's popular in uh, manga and anime, formless style. Because even in a basketball manga that I'm reading, Kuroko's Basketball. Oh, yeah. There's a character in there who like just gets really low or bends backwards or sideways and makes a shot. And they call it the formless shot. Oh, yeah. Ayomine. <laughs> so the way Ayomine moves or like the way like uh, the Fang of Masudo moves or Brian Hawk moves, it all looks kind of like like uh yuri prohaska and yuri prohaska himself looks like from his hair to everything <laughs> he kind of even looks like zangief you know <laughs> yeah actually that's a <laughs> i didn't even think about that that's a good one he does he does look like zangief that's a good one and you know zangief has that perpetual motion attack where he just does spinning moves over and over and over <laughs> yeah i mean what was wild about this fight and somebody actually pointed it out in discord is that Every time Prohaska got hit clean, it's like he, after that, he started moving at a faster pace, too, which was, which is scary, to be honest. That's, that's probably, as a fighter, that's, pro that's one of your worst-case scenarios. You hit a guy as hard as you can, but they're actually, they come out of it better and faster and set, set a pace that's even faster than it was before. Like, wait, what? Hold up. That's not what's supposed to happen when I hit you that like that. It looks a lot like when Justin Gaethje first got to the UFC and, and everybody was just so shocked by his aggressive style and nothing phased him. If you hit him, he did not get discouraged and he kept coming forward. That's a good, yeah, that's a good comparison. I, and even when, uh, I remember when I was like, before I like started getting back in MMA, I used to watch the, uh, before they turned into PFL World Series of Fighting. And I saw a highlight of like his, one of his fights there. That was just an absolute war. I'm like, does this dude just not care about getting hit at all? <laughs> like, this is four ounce gloves we're talking about. We're not talking. This is not like boxing gloves. Four ounce gloves. You just taking and you just taking them. Chonk, did you think at any point Prohaska was out because Reyes hit him with some good shots? Um, no. You know, it's really weird though. He's like uh, Prohaska. Um, you know, he just kept coming forward, and you know, it's like uh, he didn't even really raise his hands or try to do defense even after he got hit. But yeah, he just kept going forward the whole time. So um, I don't even think he really got staggered at all or even tired. But what about that up kick? Some people claim that when he got kicked, he actually fell because he was unconscious, but he just happened to fall over into a pass. Now, do you think he was actually unconscious or he just took a shot, but he just moves weird? Yeah, I mean, he probably just took a shot, you know, and I mean, you can fall down like, like, I don't think he really went unconscious, you know. Were you at all surprised how Reyes looked in this fight? Because he looked so good when he not only fought John Jones, but all the previous fights prior. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of surprised. Uh, he looked uh, like he really started to gas in the second round. You know, that, that's where I was kind of shocked. I was like, you know, I thought he'd keep going a little bit better. But, you know, I mean, I guess it's different, you know, because with John Jones, like, you know, you can fight at a slower pace and, 
you know, Jones will let you do that. But I think uh, Reyes just didn't really get time to breathe or process what was happening. Like you, you'd see with that, um, with that uh, spinning back elbow, um, you know, he are, he um, escaped one elbow and, you know, like right as he was trying to process what was going on, you know, he got hit with that spinning back elbow. You know, it looked like uh, Reyes was going back against the cage and, you know, trying to rest, and, you know, trying to figure out what was happening. But, you know, Jerry just uh, kept going forward on him. Aaron Alde, you also wrote the case for how Reyes would win this fight. So did he live up to your expectations or were you surprised by how he looked? I was a little bit surprised by how he looked, um, mainly because I thought that he was going to throw more leg and body kicks. I really thought we were going to see a lot of leg kicks and a lot of wrestling if he was going to try to take the fight. Uh, this is going to sound bad. If he was going to take the fight seriously and his opponent seriously, I thought his best path to victory would be to take him down and to try to wear on him that way. Um, unfortunately, it was hard to say who had the grappling advantage. He did manage to get one takedown, um, where he got like an outside trip on him, sort of. And, and it was nice and he held him down. And then it, um, it brings up the question of like, well, what is Yuri able to do off his back? Um, and Yuri kind of just stayed calm and stayed patient and didn't do much for a second. But then as soon as he got a moment to explode, he just did one of those video game character things where it's like, this is not any kind of technical stand-up. There's no <laughs> technique that I could teach you here. This is just, hey, get up. You know what I'm saying? It's like very much it reminded me of how people talk about wrestlers, where they say wrestlers just have a really good sense for knowing how to get on top, even if it doesn't make any sense. Um, and it was the same sort of thing here where he just kind of seemed to know how to get up, even then just not care that he was in, you know what I'm saying, quarter mile or whatever it is, a three-quarter mile or whatever it is. Yeah, the way he got out was both the right way to get out and the complete wrong way to get out. So technically, that is not the way you should ever get out of that position, get out of mount, because he almost gave up his back. It was like, what he did was completely wrong, but what he nailed was the timing, and he also nailed the positioning where he felt like he could get out, meaning Reyes was high on him, so there was an ability to escape out the back door. So even though he did the wrong technique, because he nailed the timing and he felt where the gap was, the wrong technique didn't matter. And I feel like that says a lot about how he fights in general, where he doesn't always do the right technique per se, but his sense of when to attack and from what angle to attack is so good that he's able to get away with it as far as offense, like hitting the person. but because it's not always the best thing, he also sometimes gets hit. But because he nails the other things so well, he hits them harder. And obviously from this fight, he's pretty damn durable. Oh, yeah, because he ate some counter. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, he, ate, he ate some clean straight to the chin. Chunk already told us that he felt like he wasn't really like ever in trouble as far as like being finished. But do y'all think like that there were times where he was really hurt and he was covering it up or he was like getting close to being knocked down or that up kick really got him? What do y'all think? Uh, for me, I feel like it's a mix. There were a couple of punches that got through where I'm like, okay, yeah, he stumbled a little bit on that, but he recovered fast. So I'm like, just based off that recovery, I'm thinking, all right, at maximum, maybe it was like a little flash of flash of consciousness consciousness loss real quick the up kick it's kind of like 
maybe he got rocked a little bit. I don't think so personally, because you know, like you mentioned, he he moved with such an awkward. He has such an awkward style that it might just be the fact that he's just moving weird. You know, sometimes, and and like you said, you know, fundamentally, if I were, especially like you know, pe- the people I came up training with, and you know, and the Muay Thai scene in America is all about aesthetics and technique. They would hate watching this guy fight. <laughs> they will. They would try to rip. They would want to pull their hair out. I know my former coach would like absolutely be livid watching this guy fight. However, I think that awkwardness he's. He's managed to uh, he's managed to turn that into a style in and of itself, from what I can tell. All right, all day. You've watched the most Yuri Prohaska fights out of any of us, so you probably can gauge how bad he was hurt in this fight, if at all. What do you think? I personally think there was exactly one moment where he was hurt. Mm. Um, mm, okay. And that one moment is he got hit with a counter, and he stepped back. And he sort of went into like a small hitman stance. And then when Reyes came forward just a little bit, he shot on him. Oh. oh and that's yeah. the one time I think that's he was one, hurt. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the one. Because yeah, he stumbled for like half about. a second. Yeah, and he got his composure back. You know what I'm saying? But he had to regroup himself really quick. In regards to the um, up kick, I think like toes and maybe even the ball of the foot grazed his face. But I don't think it hurt him significantly. He looked like He looked like it didn't. It didn't really register. He just went back down. <laughs> but then Reyes went for that unfortunate guillotine and gave Prohaska a chance to recover. But what was surprising was as soon as he recovered, he was right back on the, on the attack again. He was not deterred. He was not afraid of Reyes. It's like that's the shot that's supposed to gain the respect. And so you know how like coaches say you got to earn that fighter's respect so that they'll start backing up or you could get your other stuff going but he won't let you get your other stuff going because even that hard shot that damn near finishes him won't get his respect i think he respects you as a martial artist or as a person but he is not afraid to get knocked out kind of like justin gaethje it's like i will keep coming forward and if i get knocked out so be it that's yeah that's kind of the impression I got, I haven't watched too many of his fights. I did happen to, uh, before the fight happened, I did happen to catch his fight against Vadim Nemkov and Ryzen. And then I saw the King, uh, the King Mo fight after that. And, but this last fight really put it into perspective, like why he has the record that he has. Like, I mean, if you go on his Wikipedia page, you see a lot of W's, green W's and a lot of round times that are in the ones and the twos, mostly ones though. And I'm like, yeah, cause he just swarms people. Cause when you get hit that hard, you don't just recover like that, for most people at least. But to get hit that hard and basically regain your consciousness and then go back to the same pace you were going at, you don't really see, you don't see that a lot in any combat sport. Boxing, MMA, kickball, it doesn't matter. You don't really see that too often. The fight didn't last that long, but at the same time, it felt like a very long fight or it felt like yes. it was actually five rounds. Yes. Because so much happened. Now let's move on to the featherweight bout between prospect Giga Chikadze and veteran Cub Swanson, which ended in a body kick to punches on the ground finish by Chikadze in just over a minute. Since this was all striking, Jodeci Joestar, can you give us your analysis for this fight? Yeah, I mean, Giga came in with the, like, the kickboxer blueprint, especially like that liver kick was perfect. 
Because as soon as I saw it and I heard it, I'm like, well, this fight is over. And then what do you know? Cub Swanson, I know this too because I've been dropped by liver kicks many times. My first smoker, I lost because of a liver kick, one that I was actually winning on paper. I lost because of a liver kick. And then my last fight in Thailand, I got dropped in the first round because of a liver kick. So there's really not a lot you can do of that. And, you know, seeing Cub Swanson still fighting, even now, for me, he might not be, he's clearly not in his prime anymore, but like, I'm still impressed. But Giga, I remember watching some of his, like, a couple of his kickboxing fights when he was still in glory. And even then, I'm like, yeah, this guy's got it, sets a good pace. And when I when I found out he was doing MMA, I'm like, yeah, he'll he'll probably break into like at least the top ten without a doubt, just because of striking. Even in a kickboxing setting, like he's really he's really good in that area alone. I mean, just look at what Israel Adesanya has been able to do as primarily a kickboxer. How did you know that kick was perfect? What about the kick did you know right away that it was over? Well, the thing about the bot, the thing about the liver kicks, is that. You can get hit to like, you can get kicked a lot. Like I'm right-handed, so that liver kick will be on my right side. You can get kicked a lot in that right side. Where the liver kick happens is like right below the ribs. Now, doesn't mean you should be taking kicks on the ribs, but like it won't drop you instantaneously. It will just be accumulated damage. But a liver kick is a little bit like, a little bit lower I'd say mostly like like right above like right above the hip where the soft part of the body is, and you see a lot of the, you see it a lot with uh, boxers with good body punches. How they they say uh, coaches will say you got to dig into the body or dig up into the body, and you kind of have to treat that same mentality with a kick. So like a lot of people, even when they look hunt for the liver kick, they kick a little bit too high up, which isn't necessarily bad, but to do that damage. It requires a lot of accuracy. And because he's more of a kickboxer style, instead of hitting with his shin, and there's even pictures of it, you could see him hit with like his foot on the side of his liver right there, which is probably like a little bit worse as far as being more accurate than the shin sometimes. Because the shin might hit the ribs, the liver, it might just it's just gonna hit wherever. It's a big bone, but his foot almost dug right into his body. This there's actually a picture of it I saw on uh I believe on Instagram, somebody posted it and it was picture perfect, like right in the liver. You don't get to see that a whole lot. You also said how it sounded. So how do you know from the sound that it's good? Yeah. So when it comes to the left side, like body kicks, you never want to hear one of two sounds. You never want to hear like like a smack and you never want to hear it thud. A thud means that it was bone connecting on something, but that smack could be like, you know, I'm instantly like looking like, where did he just get hit by? The liver kick or the body kick is also hard to land because most people are orthodox, right? Yep. Um, so they stand with the lead leg forward. So that means because you're kicking with the lead leg, you have to do a fast switch kick. Yeah. So that moment to switch your lead to go into southpaw to kick with your lead leg it delays the kick. Exactly. So most people see that kick coming. So that means that Giga's switch kick is that quick that somebody as experienced as Cub Swanson couldn't see it. And to your point about the sound, you know, 
if you hear a slapping sound where they're just kicking normally, you know, I'm right-handed. If I kick with my right leg, hearing a slap might not mean a great deal because there's a lot of meaty parts of the body I might be able to hit. Whereas if I'm kicking with the left leg off of a switch kick, I'm probably not going to kick their leg. It's going to be shin on shin. It's going to hurt. Yeah, exactly. I could try to hit the head or I could hit to the body. If I hit the head, it's going to make a thud. Hearing a slap from the left kick, that means that there's only so many fleshy parts of the body you could hit. And that's basically the area between the rib cage to the hip. So that's another reason why coming from that side, you knew it was going to be bad. You don't want to get kicked in the ribs, no doubt. You can take a few of those. A liver kick, it's not, it's no longer up to you, which is like the biggest thing about it. You know, everybody says it all the time. Like you see the, you see every fighter's reaction when somebody gets kicked in the liver. It's nothing like everybody's like, oh man, it's either like an instant reaction or a delayed reaction. And either way, you don't want to do anything. Like you didn't even see, like I was impressed that Cub even was trying to go for a takedown afterwards, to be fair. Not, I mean, I guess you can call it a takedown. He was kind of just reaching and hanging on to something, but. The fact that he even had the wherewithal to do that was still shocking to me. And I thought the referee was going to stop it. Even Giga kind of paused for a second because he knew what happened. As a kickboxer, he was already knew, like, uh, this fight is over. I don't really want to hit him. But, okay, I guess I can hit him while he's on the ground. He even mentioned that in the post-fight interview, I believe. Aran Alde, how much of this do you think was Chikatse being that good? And how much of this are the miles Swanson already has on him? Man, that's a it's a rough question. I like Cub Swanson so much. I just like call him Cub Swanson because I feel like he always manages to find a way to win. <laughs> he'll find a way, <laughs> even if he should not win a fight, he will find a way. Um, however, I think we just can't take away from Giga Jakatsi and just the placement of that liver kick, especially like if, if it wasn't a guy who was coming into MMA with his particular liver kick being known as the Giga kick. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> It, it might yeah. be a little bit different, uh, but I'm inclined. You know what I'm saying? I I defer to Jodeci in the sense that, you know what I'm saying? He's telling me, you get hit in the liver and you're going down. And so I believe it. I've seen, I've seen enough people get hit in the liver and watch them go down to, to believe that, that that's real. You could, you could be winning a fight, you know? Similar to like, you know, you don't see it too often, but, you know, I've seen a couple of fights in Muay Thai specifically live or in person where somebody's winning but they get cut with a cut with an elbow a bad cut in a bad spot and the fight is over and they lost despite the fact that they probably would have won on the judge's scorecard but it's still a legitimate loss you know cub didn't really get the chance to really get started in this fight but you know that could that could have happened at any point and like you said you know the kick is literally called the giga kick so like this isn't some like one-off thing he didn't get he, he clearly didn't get lucky this is like I, I would assume, I would bet money that Giga is the type of dude to be laying people out in sparring sessions, especially based on you know his kickboxing background. And I know during the promo videos they showed a clip of him sparring, and I'm like, yeah, this is definitely this is a this is a true kickboxer right here. There's no no nothing light about his pace, nothing nothing slow or relaxed or as like you know thighs cross the bicep by no no. There's no chill <laughs> in his style at all. Swanson also came up in an era of MMA where everybody was just headhunting. So he never really had to worry about those body shots as much. And so as these younger fighters are throwing more leg kicks again, calf kicks or aiming even lower or attacking to the body, 
I think uh, a lot of the instincts that older fighters have developed aren't serving them well anymore. You know, the game is progressing so fast and like the stacked weight classes that you could have a good fighter, like a really good fighter two years ago might be struggling in the top 10 today. And two years is not that long. Like it's not that long, but the, uh, the game changes and progresses so fast. So like when you're, when you're stuck playing catch up, especially against newer and fresher talent, that's a lot to overcome just in general. But like, I see that I've been seeing this a lot, especially at like Bantamweight and Featherweight. Like, you know, this is a Featherweight fight. It's like, you know, as long as Cub Swanson has been fighting, the fact that he still managed to, managed to stay in the top 15 should already earn people's respect in and of itself, to be honest. Going to your point about how quickly things change, I didn't feel good about Reyes going into this fight. Really starting a couple of days ago when I heard some recent interviews and I was like, oh man, I think Reyes is going to lose. Not because he doesn't have the skill set to beat Prohaska, but in the interviews, first of all, he sounded very flustered, which isn't good because just looking back in the past, he fought a lot better when he was calm throughout the fight and just went at his own pace. He didn't care so much the pace that his opponent was trying to put on. But secondly, he said because of that loss to Blahovich, that he wanted to go back to the old him, the aggressive him, the finisher that was coming up. Whenever I hear somebody say they're going to go back to the old version of them, for me, it's always a red flag because the old version of them was the one coming up in the regional scene. So that means you were fighting regional fighters. So fighters not nearly at the same level as Prohaska or anybody in the top five, right? So that's the reason why you were able to style on them. So then trying to do that style against opponents that are much better than that is going to get you knocked out, which is what happened. And he forgot the reason why he doesn't fight like that anymore, because he adapted to better competition. So as the competition got better, then he changed the style. But somewhere <laughs> along the lines, he forgot that that was all because of strength of schedule, not because I don't know that he forgot who he used to be before. So for me, that's always a red flag. When you try to go back to the old you, then you forgot why uh, the old you was the old you was because the strength of schedule was weaker back then. Yeah, you pretty much said it. Because like, you know, using another anime reference, this isn't like anime where, you know, you see like a martial arts anime where you they, the character like they're like, oh, wow, look, he's going back to his original style and they are like better. It's, it usually doesn't play. Unfortunately, I hate that. I hate, hate that it does, you know. But it doesn't usually play like play out like that in real life, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, you see it sometimes in boxing too, where like uh, somebody develops a specific style, but when they get put in a bad situation in the middle of the fight, because it's twelve, like ten to twelve rounds, that they automatically they go back to their old style, mm. and usually when that happens, they're probably going to lose because they don't trust. They don't trust what they've learned to get them to the higher levels. Yeah. So they're reverting back to like, I got to go back to base, base instincts. This is what you get when you get a black and Asian panel. A lot of anime and manga references. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, then you can't forget about the most epic of all anime manga tropes, which is the final form. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where... You have the old you, you have the new you, and then you synthesize the two and you create the final form. Yes. Which is what Reyes forgot about. Yeah. 
instead we saw Prohaska's final form. Yeah, and the thing about Prohaska, that's I'm glad you mentioned that. The thing about Prohaska is like the what I'm thinking about is like, okay, he basically managed to like finish a guy who's still competitive in like the upper ranks of this weight of his weight class. And this is a guy who's only had two UFC fights so far, but he can make a legitimate run for the title. And it's not, and there nobody's gonna like argue against it. So is he gonna only get better from here? Because <laughs> he looked better than he did in his last fight. In his last fight, he stopped the, he stopped his last opponent in the second round also, but he looked better this fight. So it's like, is he does he is he the type of person to get better the better the competition is? Because if so, that's terrifying. <laughs> I'll point out one scary fact. Yuri Prohaska is 28 years old. What? <laughs> yes. He's 28 years old. He was born in 1992. Oh, my God. I thought he was 35. No. <laughs> which, for light heavyweight, is when you get into your prime. You get into your prime later for light heavyweight and in some of the heavier divisions. Man. Yeah, look that's at Glover. Bad. That's bad news for that division. That changed everything. I was like, okay, this guy, maybe he'll get a title, you know. Maybe he'll have one defense and then he's going to get long in the tooth and that'll be over. I don't even know if he's going to get the title, but his athletic prime is still ahead of him because especially at this division, you could be fighting into your 40s. Yeah, he's got a long career ahead of him, even if he gets routed this time, I think. Mm, So that means he has other shots at the light heavyweight title, even if he doesn't make a run this time. Yeah. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And speaking of this division, next is another light heavyweight bout between Ian Kutalaba versus Dustin Jacoby, a fight Jacoby took on short notice. This is also not new for Jacoby, however as he's taken short-notice fights in glory kickboxing before. So he's our second glory kickboxing fighter, Gigi Chikase being the other one. This fight ended with a draw, with Kutalaba winning a dominant first round, and then Jacoby out-hustling Kutalaba for rounds two and three. Now draws suck, not only because it does nothing for your record, but also because that means the UFC does not have to pay either fighter the other half of their pay, a.k.a. the win bonus. Chunk, did you see this as a draw? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it could have been called a draw, you know. Um, I mean, if the first round's 10 8, and then, um, like, I'm, I'm still not quite sure how you know you would have scored it that way. Like, I thought, um, um, Jacoby was definitely winning at the end, but you know, if, if he called the first round 10 8, then like, I, I could see how you'd get the split draw. What do you think Jacoby could have done to win this fight? Because he was clearly the fresher fighter in round two and three. Yeah, I I think in the third round, like he was countering with like single shots and whatnot, or you know he countered with like a jab or something. When it's like, 
you know, maybe you want to, you know, counter with something that can put a guy away, you know? So, like, I don't know, maybe counter with, like, uh, a body kick or, you know, a hook or something. But it definitely looked like he was just countering with, like, single shots and, you know, just kind of content to let it go that way. Aaron Alde, what do you think about Kudalaba's go-for-broke first-round style? And do you think he was ever close to finishing Jacoby in that round? I'll start with the style. <laughs> um, actually, no, I'll start with the finish. I don't think he was that close to finishing him. I think that he was hitting him with a lot of stuff, but I think Jacoby was staying relatively composed and was avoiding enough damage to not get dropped over and over again. Because, yeah, he was taking shots and he was getting overwhelmed. But it wasn't that kind of thing that, I don't know, for me, if I watch a fighter's legs give out like twice, after that, I'm like, okay, stop the fight. Like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, look, in real quick succession, that's that's enough. You get like one more chance. And if you don't, then we got to do something. Um, I think that Kudalaba's style is meant to sway the refs in that direction. You know what I'm saying? When he overwhelms an opponent like that, if he can't put them away, to just have the ref be so concerned for the other person that they, you know what I'm saying, say, hey, all right, look, I've seen enough. Um, I think that Kudalaba's style will only get him so far, and I don't even know if he'll crack the top 10 with that style, quite honestly. If he's not already, if he's in the top 10, then, you know what I'm saying, I'm eating my words, but like, <laughs> I don't think he's in the top 10. And I don't think he'll make it there without either a commitment to a gas tank or a somewhat more methodical approach to pick his shots and to pick his moments for that aggression. Jodeci Joestar. Because it was Kudalaba who was fading, it feels more like this was a missed opportunity for Jacoby. Yeah, it, re- it definitely was. So do you agree with the takedowns at the end, or do you think he could have done things differently in rounds two and three? Did you see opportunities where maybe he could have finished Kudalaba based on the way Kudalaba was reacting? Yeah, I mean, the first round, I thought it was going to be a draw because of how they were saying, well, the first round's a 10-8, first round's a 10-8. I didn't think it was a 10-8. But, you know, looking at it, like, outside of that perspective, if I was a coach, I'd probably be like, regardless of whether we think that's a 10-8 or not, just assume it's a 10-8 for these next two rounds. And we got to, like, we got to keep it up. And based on Dustin's reaction, I don't know if you uh, saw his reaction at the end, like, he was shocked that it was a draw. And based on that reaction, I assumed that he thought he did a lot more than he did in those final two rounds. Because I'm like, what do you, when he was reacting like that, I'm like, what are you shocked about? I mean, they gave him a 10 8, which I don't really agree with in the first round. So unless you put him away in the last two, then that's probably going to be in the draw. And uh, so I guess, especially when he started going for takedowns at the end, which just from, you know, outside looking in perspective you're the kickboxer like that's not this that's not the thing to do at that moment in the fight personally like that's not i mean and especially like y'all admission how uh ian kotalaba he gassed pretty early so take advantage of that he's not really gonna throw anything with a lot i mean from what i could tell it was a lot of just uh, looping punches swinging punches dustin was doing very good when he was throwing his straight punches so if he just added a little bit more volume to that, we might have had a different story. Because there were a couple of times, you know, 
he clipped uh, Kutalabe, but he didn't. He just never really followed up with it. And then he kind of lost that last minute chance when he started going for takedowns at the end. Which personally, I still I'm confused about. Personally, I didn't didn't really make any sense to me, especially knowing Dustin's background. I watched him a lot when he was uh in Lloyd to kickboxing because he fought against the uh, famous kickboxer Simon Marcus from Canada twice. So it was interesting to me seeing him go for takedowns at the very end of that fight when that wasn't really like strategy wise. I mean, I didn't really understand that at all. His coach, Coach Montoya, actually gave him really good advice and had a really good eye for the fight, even with such a short notice, because he saw that the jab was working and then he was either landing or it was forcing Kudalaba's head to one side or the other. And so that means then if you could predict or just throw it out there and try to hit his head as he's coming towards the direction of your punch, either side, left hook, you know, right overhand, something, or even like a one-two, he could have ran into your punch and dropped himself. And that's basically the advice that his coach was giving him. And he kind of backed away from it. Uh, just like Chunk was saying, he just did single shots, but that was it. He didn't build off of that jab, which was interesting because he is such a good kickboxer. Yeah, like the thing about the jab is that, you know, use it for what it is. That's the building block to your combination. Dustin was getting in good jabs, but like you said, it was just, you know, that was it. Which again, I'm like, did you think that it was that you were about to win? Those later rounds, especially when you lost the first round, you really got to just follow up on that. MMA, boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, it doesn't matter. That's just something you got to do as as a, as part of the striking element of the game. What did y'all think of the weigh-in antics of Kudalaba? Oh, I got feelings about that. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, for that, fighters should not be allowed to touch each other at weigh-ins, period. First of all, I know they're about to fight, but like we're still in the pandemic. I know I know MMA fans don't want to hear it. I know they probably think I'm uh, being paid off at Bill Gates, whatever <laughs> new conspiracy they're coming up with now. <laughs> but like one keep your hands off each other you y'all get paid you y'all literally get paid to fight what the hell two you know dana white's right there and i know why like you know he loves this stuff man like he's all about that stuff so this is probably gonna keep happening unfortunately but it's in bad taste that this happened again right after somebody literally got injured and they lost the payday because of it you know like you playing with people's money now. This is not a, this ain't a game. Next, we have a middleweight bout between Sean Strickland and Christoph Jocko, which Strickland won by unanimous decision in a spirited contest where neither man was ever close to being finished. This sets Strickland up for tougher competition after a four fight winning streak. Aaron Alde, do you think Strickland is ready for tougher competition? That's that's a hard question because do I feel like he's ready? Probably not. Do I feel like he should get a shot? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He needs to learn somehow. I think that's the only way he's going to learn. Um, Jocko kind of disappointed me because he just decided to never, ever wrestle him. <laughs> I don't know why. It was like the inverse of the Justin, Jaco- Justin Jacoby fight where it's like, what are you, what are you asking a kickboxer? Why are you wrestling? You're asking a wrestler. Why are you kickboxing? What are you doing? especially with his very upright stance that he was walking with. Um, I thought he was just right for some takedowns. That being said, you know, he, he won the fight. He found a way to win the fight. So let's see if he can keep finding ways to win. Jodeci Joestar, what did you like from both fighters and what did you not like? Uh, 
I mean, one thing I did like was, uh, you know, Strickland was throwing a lot of straight shots. I always, I'm always a fan of the straight punches, as you already know. <laughs> but uh, one thing I didn't like, though, from Strickland, but I also didn't like from Kristoff because Kristoff wasn't taking advantage of this, is that, you know, Strickland was very, very tall, like upright. Not tall because of his height, but just like standing very upright in his stance. Personally, I wouldn't even do that for in just in a striking setting alone because you're creating openings and he won the fight legitimately. Like, I don't think he lost the fight, but you saw a lot of openings just from that upright stance alone, especially in an MMA fight where takedowns are involved, like your boy mentioned. And uh, and Kristoff was kind of he was really mixing up his strikes a lot more than Strickland was, but it seemed like he wasn't. Like it's it, it was weird. It seemed like he wasn't like as committed to connecting with him. He was kind of just like barely reaching out there, like connected every sometimes, and then stopped, and then like threw a combination, but then like really put any muster behind it. And you know, if that I mean, if he was having that uh, many problems in the striking element, you know. As was said, mentioned before, I don't understand why you didn't wrestle wrestle with him. You know, I, I wrestled in high school. Somebody standing up that tall, that's an easy takedown right there. It's not you don't have to be some Olympic club wrestler to take somebody down with a high, with a stance like that too. Chunk, this was kind of a MMA version of a boxing fight. Maybe not the best boxing fight. So, what were your impressions of this fight? Yeah, the, the, I, I can say I'm not the best boxing fights. Good way to put it. Um, <laughs> like it was really weird though because I think um, maybe they threw like a few kicks, and there was absolutely no attempts to um, do any takedowns or anything. So it was really just like yeah, it was like a boxing match with a couple uh, attempts at a kick. But like I don't know because I mean I think both of them are like good fighters from a technical sense. You know, but it kind of looked like, um, like a like a fight night game. Like if you've ever played <laughs> Fight Night Championship, but but the two people don't actually know how to box, or you know, you you're having trouble with like the controls, so you're throwing <laughs> like punches at each other, and you're kind of avoiding them. But there's no like deception, you know. There's no like real movement or anything like that. Yeah, I mean it's really hard to explain, but yeah, I mean it looked like you know, a really bad boxing match in a lot of ways. You know, I think that they had, like, fundamentals and stuff you could build off of for both of them. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think, like, you could... Like, even in uh, the middleweight division, like, I don't think you could take what you saw there and, you know, put either one of those guys in against a top five or top ten fighter. You know, because, you know, somebody else is just going to see Strickland the way he was and just shoot for a takedown and just do that all night. That analogy is really good. Because those fighters in a video game, right, they've been programmed to know how to throw every technique correctly because by design, they know how to throw this hook, that hook, uppercut, jab, straight, bob, weave, slip. It's all programmed in there. So a good player can take that fighter and do really well. A bad player can take that fighter and can just throw nonsense, right? (laughs) And so watching this, you're saying both of them look like they were programmed to know how to do all the techniques properly. But whoever was in control of the players, they didn't fully optimize their abilities. Next, we have a bantamweight bout between Marab Devalishvili versus Cody Stamen. 
with Davalishvili winning by unanimous decision. Jodeci Joestar, what did you think about this fight, and what do you think lost Stamen the fight? This was a, I mean, this was a pretty entertaining fight, but I think it was the stand-up exchanges and the pace that you know that Divash uh, Divash uh, Marab. I'm just calling Marab. I'm gonna butcher the mess of his last name, <laughs> but uh, I feel like the Stamen was doing a good job, especially uh, like in the beginning. But it broke away from him one because I I remember watching uh, one of Marab's more recent fights. I forgot who it against, but like when I saw his pace, I'm like, yeah, even at abandoned weight, like that's going to be a tough fight for anybody, even in the top ten, just because of the pace he sets alone. And it just seemed like at a certain point, Stamen was just playing catch up. He wasn't. There wasn't like any point in the fight where I thought he was uh where. He was like getting like completely like just overwhelmed and dominated. He was losing though. Like this wasn't like a one-sided match. It was a competitive fight. But you know, Marab came out. He won the exchanges that he had to had to win, especially in the stand-up area. Chunk, did you have thoughts about this fight? Uh yeah, I did. Um I thought it was really impressive, like the distance at which uh Marab would strike at and then go from there into a takedown. You know, because you don't necessarily see that a lot in MMA. Like, you know, you'll see a lot of guys, you know, they'll strike and they miss and they'll try to reset or they'll go for a takedown, miss and try to reset. But, um, yeah, like Marab, uh, I thought he did a really great job of just like, you know, rolling his uh, strike attempts into takedowns. You know, he's very relentless about it, too. So. And unfortunately for Stamen, it seems like now he's sitting at that position where he's a gatekeeper fighter, where he could beat everybody who's in the regional scene or unranked. But once he gets to rank fighters or people on the come up, it's not like he gets blown out, but definitely he, I would say, gets shut down where everything he wants to do, the other fighter does a little bit better. So he can't make it to the next level. But he's too good to drop down even lower. So he's going to be kind of that guy that people have to beat on their way up. I feel like a lot of it is he short arms his strikes. He wants to punch into clinches and to takedowns. But when it does land, it grazes or it misses altogether. Or he doesn't get full extension or full power into his punches. So it's not even talking about his reach. There's people even with shorter reaches who land with more authority, whereas he seems to have more of a style where he it seems like he smothers his own punches like a lot of the power goes away in his punches and i wonder if it's he's not even committing to them maybe he's just throwing them out there to throw them out there to try to get into the clinch and get into a takedown but if he doesn't commit to any of them and if none of them actually land or going back to the idea of getting respect then how are you supposed to get the takedowns unless you just have phenomenal wrestling which he doesn't he is a good wrestler but you know, you could have somebody like Habib, where even if he doesn't land a bunch of punches on you, even on a bad shot attempt, he'll still finish it because his wrestling is that phenomenal. Whereas Stamen has to hustle a little bit more in the striking to get those takedowns. Yeah, that's a good point, especially uh, mentioning how he was short arming his strikes a lot, which is something that, you know, as somebody who teaches, one thing that I always tell people especially beginners when they spar is to, you know, like trust the technique, 
meaning a lot of times when a beginner punches and sparring, they might not know it, but they're pulling back on the punch. Either it's one of two things. They're either pulling back on the punch because they don't want to hurt you or they're over committing to it because they're going too hard. They're stressed out. They're not used to sparring. It's almost like uh, punching as if you're hitting mitts, but against a bad mitt holder where they're meeting you halfway. Yes. So you're training yourself to only punch halfway, half the distance, right? Which I don't know. I've seen people who like, even though they have bad mitt holders and they train like that, they still know how to fully extend. Whereas he was punching as if he was punching into a bad imaginary mitt holder. And that's kind of been the way he's fought his whole career. Yeah. That's funny as you mentioned that too. I noticed sometimes when they, uh, it's always interesting. I'm very, I'm, I'm very observant when the UFC does their like commercials and their breaks, especially these new army commercials they're doing. Very <laughs> weird. Very weird, by the way. Like it's giving me major dystopian vibes, but I digress. But when I uh, see some of the warmups, especially that some fighters are doing, like striking wise, it's either one of two things. It's like, all right, this is clearly like their MMA. Well, not even their MMA. That's this is not even. This is clearly probably like their grappling coach holding some focus for them because like that's bad pad holding, which a lot of people don't know unless you've like fought or or you're a coach, especially if you're a coach, you can tell a bad, bad holder right away. And I'm like, see some people warm up. I'm like, is he like, does he know how to extend out on the jab? He's just literally punching like halfway and just going to the motions. But then again, it's a warm up, So you can't really judge somebody based on the warm up too much. So I noticed that a lot. That's actually a good point. That's like, that's a really good comparison. Cause I have noticed that like the last few UFC events I've watched where, you know, they show somebody hitting pads and it's like, you're not like following through on the punch. You're not extending out. <laughs> I thought it was just me being overly observant, but that makes more sense now. Yeah. And like you said, even though you don't want to overswing, you need to fully extend to get the momentum to roll you into the defensive movements. And if you pull back, then you've already like stuttered or stumbled on your momentum. And so kind of like a badly thrown kick, you got nothing. Now you can't fully turn around to come back to your fighting stance. And you can't stop right there to even be on an opposite side. You're just stuck in a bad position because you didn't commit all the way. So you have to commit to just be defensively sound sometimes, whether it's punches or kicks. Next is a woman's strawweight scrap between newcomer Luana Pinero versus UFC veteran Randa Marcos, who was on a three-fight losing streak and may be at the end of her UFC career. And... With this fight, she just lost it by illegal upkick in the first round. It was a really fun fight with probably the best judo we've seen in women's MMA since Ronda Rousey. Of course, Kayla Harrison is the most accomplished judoka in all of MMA, but as far as seamless transitions to throws and velocity for MMA, Pinheiro has it. R and Alde, can you give us a summary of this fight? Yeah, it was fairly back and forth on the feet um, with Marcos blitzing um, Pinheiros, who was looking to clinch, though wasn't afraid to strike as well. Though when it got into the clinching exchanges, Pinheiros was just able to toss her around like it was nothing. Um, not like it was nothing, but was able to toss her around with a fair amount of ease. And then at about, I think it was at about like two minutes left, I'd have to look and see again. They both found themselves, it's weird because they found themselves in that position one other time where Marcos had been thrown to the ground and found herself kind of like falling over the top of Pinheiros with her legs 
um, near Pinheros' face, and she kind of like spazzed out a little bit and then did a technical stand-up the first time. And then the second time, um, Pinheros' knees were on the ground, and she threw a kick that hit Pinheros in the head super hard. Um, and she was immediately laid out, eyes glossy, you know, spread eagle on the ground. And the commentary switched to that kind of like a... It's to me is like the the MMA equivalent of when you're messing around with your like sibling and you like bust their nose or something. And you go, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You're fine. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because you're hoping that, you know what I'm saying, things will just go back to how they were how they were a second ago when that's clearly not the case. Um, and the commentator is wondering, like, do you take a point and move on? Bisping was saying. Um, but yeah, rightfully, Marcos got DQ'd. Were you surprised at the aggression that Marcos came out with? I wasn't just because she was on a losing streak, so I feel like she needed to do something. Mm. And in the UFC, I think the one kind of implicit message is, hey, even if you can't win, if you can go out there and put your health on the line to make a fight exciting, we'll keep you around. I mean, the UFC is really to blame for that upkick because her whole style and everything that happened was just this fear of getting cut and losing her job and losing her income because they never set her up for retirement. Chonk. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was like really crazy because uh, it looks like there was that eye poke or whatever. Or not the eye poke, but like she got a cut on her eyelid. And so she went back and, you know, you could see she was like willing to go back and fight. But uh, yeah, like she just um, like after that, I uh, the eye cut, you know, she just went at it, you know. Like you'd see, like you know, like I think she knew, like she had to finish the fight because, you know, like when you get a cut like that, like you don't know what's gonna happen. So, so I think she was just desperate to try to finish the fight early. But I think, like, um, you know, it really uh, got me with the whole uh, UFC coverage of like the. Um, of how uh, Pinero was knocked out was how uh, you know they just kept um, you know flashing the camera over to her, and it's like you know she's knocked out like yeah it's a woman who's knocked out like I mean even if it was a male fighter like you really shouldn't be flashing the camera over and just you know getting a direct facial shot of people that are knocked out like that you know that to just continuously go back and forth like that. It's just, uh, it felt like really uh, weird, you know? It felt almost like, um, I mean, I guess in a way, combat sports is uh, voyeurism. You know, you're watching two people fight, which, you know, you normally don't do. But, you know, just watching them, uh, you know, continually flash back and forth between uh, <clears throat> to, um, to somebody who's knocked out and, you know, just stone cold in the, in the cage just felt like really dirty to me. They're showing you that while they're speculating if she's faking, which made it even grosser. Well, it, was, it felt really gross. Jodeci Joestar, as a fighter, what did you think about that? So as a fighter, well, a couple of things. Just to go the first, I'll talk about the fight and I'll talk about how I felt about the DQ, mostly the reaction to the DQ, because, you know, the fight. Y'all probably got the same impression that I got. Some of y'all kind of alluded to it, but like. Marcos fought. She looked very stressed out from the moment the bell rung, from what I could tell. She didn't look relaxed at all. Not in the sense of like, you know, it, it just seemed like, especially after she got that cut, she, her, like her facial expression seemed like 
I got to keep doing this no matter what, which, you know, there's like you, you talk about all the time, the economic incentive, especially, I think they mentioned she's only won like two out of her last nine fights recently. So like, she's clearly going to fight with a sense of urgency. What happened after the DEQ is something that I'm, I'm really over with as far as the UFC is the victim blaming that happens when somebody gets hit with an illegal technique. As a competitor, every and you and you probably know about this as well, Sam. Every as a competitor, there's a rules meeting before every single fight, grappling tournament, wrestling. It doesn't matter. There's a rules meeting. It, like the the reaction from both the commentary and the fans online too, like this whole speculating whether somebody's faking it or not, and also, well, you know, that sucks, but you know, just make up kicks legal. Well, they're not legal. So don't make, what do you like? That's not, that's not the point. The point is if somebody is getting into a cage, they have to trust the fact that their opponent is going to fight under the rule set that was provided long before the fight ever happened. And there should be no speculation about that. Somebody gets hit with an illegal technique that knocks them out. The person who threw the technique, they lose, they lose. Well, they faked it. That's just, it's, it's, uh, it's victim. It's a it's a microcosm of victim blaming, which you know it's a small glimpse in like you know a lot of the daily politics of MMA in general, even from some quote unquote the progressive journalists and the analysts of MMA, they still fall into that victim blaming mentality. Like even the stuff that was hap- that happened uh, with us, the Sterling's fight. Like he took a clean knee on the forehead. You think he's faking that? Like what? What are you watching? So like. If this keeps happening, like, I don't, I expect to see more of it because, you know, it's already like, well, sucks that she got hit with an illegal technique. So just make that technique legal, which completely glosses over everything wrong with what led up to that situation in the first place, which is, you know, is a political analogy to be made there. All right, Alde, did you have more you wanted to add? Oh, um, not much that doesn't echo what Jodeci already said. It really was a microcosm of different victim blaming that you see in the sense that the idea of, oh, is she faking it, is based on a, such a statistical improbability. It's like you can count on your hand, one hand, the number of times a fighter has faked a shot and gone down. You know what I'm saying? And of those times, and I always, I get into this debate with my roommates very often when we're watching a fight and they wonder if a fighter has thrown a fight. And sometimes I'm like, hey, look, nobody takes a punch that clean for money. Like, <laughs> look, 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 you, you would take a punch clean for some money. But if you're going to have to deduct medical bills because you got, you know what I'm saying, a severe concussion, because you got a broken jaw, because something like that happened, because you have whiplash, you know, it, it's, not, it's not worth it. And so to have these kind of crackpot conspiracy theories come out where it's like, oh, she's trying to really make a statement in her UFC b- debut by getting knocked out with an illegal upkick and then faking it so she can get a win on her record because that's really going to help her career. Yeah, that's going to get her name out there. It's just, what is the, what is the motivation? Well, how does this make any sense when it's held up to the slightest bit of scrutiny? And then I, I think a, a huge part of it is deferral to authority because you have Michael Bisping on here, who's a former fighter, you know, saying, oh, well, we should just move on. You know what I'm saying? Is she faking? Is she trying to milk the rules? It's like, hey, Bisping, just because you are someone who has always had an unhealthy relationship with the rules does not mean that everybody has the same relationship with the rules. (laughs) 
the fault of this whole thing was the UFC. Yeah. Because you're creating this Hunger Games where people made their dream to be a UFC fighter, but you never paid them enough to secure a life after UFC. And then now they're on a losing streak. And she was already afraid of getting cut previously. That's why she's had the performances that she did. That's why she ran herself into a submission against Mackenzie Dern because she was so afraid of getting cut already because she had already lost some. So that's why from the moment the bell rang, she ran out guns blazing and why she was so frantic, why she literally ran herself into throws because she was being overly aggressive. So of course she was going to kick like that because she was not in her right mind. She was in a mind of like, oh my God, what am I going to do if I get cut? I don't know how much money she's made off of MMA, but not much, not to set up her retirement. So this is what you get. When you create Hunger Games, when you have the cartel that you do, when you treat fighters like shit, when you don't set up a pension, when you don't have collective bargaining, you get fights like that. And anytime a fighter is possibly close to getting cut, they will fight like that. And so fuck you to the UFC for like victim blaming somebody who took an illegal upkick and questioning them by another fighter who then now gets DQ'd and doesn't get the other half of her pay because she wanted to make you so happy, you know? So it's all fucked up all the way around, not just for Marcos, but for Pinheiro. Normally Marcos doesn't fight like that. And even this type of style isn't the type of style that wins her fights. It's usually the thing that loses her fights because like I said, it puts her into bad grappling situations. So she was fighting not like herself. And a lot of it has to do with that fear. This is the political economy of the UFC. But this is something Dana White has also said is he wants people to fight like that. And he even said the problem with boxing is that they pay them too much. So you pay them too much. Of course, they're not going to come out guns blazing, trying to kill themselves and kill each other, right? <laughs> so he's saying if you pay them very little, yeah. they're going to fight like they're actually in a fight to the death. Yeah. Which in a financial sense, they are. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I was, um, you know, watching a, a boxing match between two heavyweights. You know, both of them are like fringe top 10 guys, but because, you know, like if you end up on like a Showtime or like a pay-per-view undercard or something like that, you, know, you can make like, say, 50 or $100,000 a fight. And it might actually be able to make sense for someone to take a, you know, eight or 10 round or eight or 10 week long training camp. Whereas prior to that, they had to like work, you know, for all the way up until the fight week, basically, you know, and then all of a sudden people get surprised when some guy who everybody thought was a club or regional level or maybe domestic level fighter puts in a good performance. And it's like, well, you know, maybe this guy now suddenly had the opportunity to do an eight or 10 week training camp, you know, to really devote themselves to the sport into a single fight. Whereas, you know, like, would you see a lot of the UFC prelims or, you know, even like boxing, like non-undercard stuff, you know, that's uh, it's a lot of guys who are basically, you know, they took the week off to fight that they, they maybe worked a regular job all the way up, up until the week prior to their fight. But, you know, it's like, what can happen if, you know, like a lot of these fighters were able to actually, uh, you know, support themselves through a full training camp instead of just you know, like whatever, you know, you train and then you take the week off prior to fighting. Yeah. What else is fucked up is 
unlike back in the day where the expectations weren't as high, the competition wasn't as high, you could work a job and fight. That's what a lot of people did. And that's why uh, they're not in as bad a dire financial situation as a lot of fighters today. Whereas today, because you have to fight whenever UFC calls you, you have to train full time, but they don't pay you enough to train full time. So you have to basically borrow money or uh, leverage whatever you have or you know, basically live off of your savings or put yourself into a financial hole just to fight for the UFC. And then if a couple of fights drop out, you might be financially ruined because you're banking on those uh, paydays and all the medical stuff, all the stuff before you get into the fight, you're paying out of your own pocket. So this is why people get so desperate. That's another aspect I wanted to add to this conversation. Yeah. Can I add to that as well, Sam? That's a very good point. From a uh... You know, as somebody who's still involved in the fight community, with stuff that like you just mentioned, you know, somebody from the outside heard that they'd be like, "Man, like, why would why would somebody do that to themselves?" But as somebody who you know is around a lot of fighters, a lot of coaches from all different, you know, doesn't matter, you know, just martial arts in general, this type of like risk taking behavior and like leaving it all on the line, even if it's going to leave you financially ruined, is kind of encouraged at the lower levels because it's like yeah you got to just you know if you want to make yourself a fighter you got to go all in but nobody ever wants to talk about the type of training and how much it costs for you to even reach the upper echelons a lot of these fighters talk about try to make it seem like there's some racks to riches stories sometimes you do get one every now and then but he's like yeah i did this on my own you know but when you look at where they train at oh you train at a top level facility. You train with multiple champions from different promotions. Like you got highest, highest level strength and conditioning equipment, coaches everywhere. You train from literally, you train the equivalent of somebody's work week, 40 hours, almost 40 hours a week of training. Like, yeah, of course you're good. You know, so, and then you got guys fighting in the same promotion who are probably working full time. I mean, what, then Demetrius Johnson, wasn't he still working full-time while he was champion? Initially. I mean, even initially, like, man. I mean, that's just common, though. You know, this is one of the few, as far as, like, exposure is concerned and how, like, you know, athletes are kind of left to themselves to promote themselves. You know, for a sport where you're, like, this out, like, the public knows you this much, yet you can't even afford to not fight without taking gigantic risks and potentially like you said you know you miss one or two fights that have nothing to do with anything that you did wrong that could be that could ruin you financially and this is one of the few like sports probably the only sport that's on espn where the fighters you know make less than the average fan Mm -hmm. and that's not even exaggeration because they also take on so much debt exactly gym fees, private lessons, they got to buy they got to borrow tons of money just from personal experience. I know people and I've been in like tight financial holes myself, which is why, you know, currently for multiple reasons like fighting when you're desperate isn't isn't the uh isn't the move that a lot of people will encourage will make it out to be because that's when the bad stuff happens. Fighting because like, you know, you just got to take whatever opportunity that you can get. You know, that type of mentality is what's get it's it's how you end up with a fight 
like the one we were talking about. Like that's that's seriously like that's the natural conclusion of that mentality. And the UFC, just like any dirtbag big corporation, then relies on the state to take care of their employees, right? So a lot of fighters then get on Medicaid. You know, they don't talk about that, but yeah. that's who their insurance is going to be through, through Medicaid. And they live off of welfare because the UFC won't pay them enough. So the untold truth is who's subsidizing fighters isn't just personal loans and savings. That's a lot of it too, but it's also the U.S. government. The UFC and all the right-wing uh, fans talk about how these programs are bad, but these are the things that are helping fighters live. So it's wild to me how then some of these fighters want these programs to go away when they're simultaneously on these programs. Like Tito Ortiz, for example, Man. has been on unemployment, but he wants to get rid of all these programs, right? That's MMA. It's not just mixing of uh, martial arts. It's also mixing of a lot of bad political ideas. Anarcho-capitalism at its peak. <laughs> For the sake of time, let's end with the women's strawweight bout between Loma Lukbunmi versus Sam Hughes. And this was mostly a Muay Thai fight. So, Jodeci Joestar, what did you think of this fight? I was very excited for this fight. You know, I, I, I do Muay Thai. I have to be a Loma stand. So, then the rule, sorry. I'm always going to be biased towards her. <laughs> but, I mean, in all seriousness, Loma has been really, like, Based on her last fight, I kind of got the impression that she's really in her element now. I mean, this fight was good. And there was a few things that, you know, probably a few things that might get her into some trouble as far as, like, taking shots as she rises up in the rank. But at the same time, you know, she's still pretty undersized at strawweight, which is wild to think about. But, you know, her true weight class is genuinely, like, 48 kilograms, 105 pounds. But... Her clinch work, despite being undersized, was amazing in this fight. I mean, as far as a blueprint for a Muay Thai fighter transitioning to MMA, you know, you got, you know, you got Shevchenko, who is just, that's a problem. That's a whole, that's, that's a whole pot, podcast episode in and of itself. Then you got Peter Yan, who is a very aggressive, almost like a Muay Mat, like, Muay, uh, like a boxer type of style in Muay Thai. And then Loma's a clincher good clincher at that but despite her clinch she also has very good body kicks got a very good uh rear push kick as well and uh that rear body kick she throws a lot it comes fast very fast and she was tagging she was tagging sam with it a lot and one thing i was confused that i got I mean i guess it shouldn't be too confusing but like you know seeing that every time when sam tried to get into a clinch exchange Loma immediately went for like a hard knee or a sweep right into a takedown. I'm like, uh, maybe you should stop running into her like that. That might not be your way to win. But it was a very impressive performance, like, especially coming off this last win that she had. It was really like, I was really happy to see her do well. Because especially, you know, I know people who actually do know her personally. So, you know, it's always nice to see, you know, Muay Thai fighter doing well in the M MMA. I think... Look, Boonmi was kind of surprised by Hughes's straight punches because MMA is really known for like elbows out looping punches. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't throw straight punches well, but Sam Hughes, especially in this fight, came out and her straight punches, her one, two were straight down the pipe. So I think that took 
Luke Boomy by surprise because you could tell oh, yeah. she couldn't see those punches coming. Not because they were so fast, not because they were fainted or they came low or she did any great setup. It was just because they came so straight. It's like, you know, when a fist travels straight into your face straight, it gets a little bit bigger and then it hits you. Yeah. So you can't really gauge distance. Like uh, if a car is moving across your computer screen, you could tell, you know, how much distance is traveling. If the car is headed towards you on the screen, you can't tell how far it's come forward because it's just starting to get bigger. And that's the same thing about a straight punch. If it comes straight with no loop, it's hard to gauge how quickly it's coming at you or that it's coming at you at all. And by the time you notice the fist has gotten bigger, it's already too late. So I think that definitely took Luke Boomy by surprise. And I think also just being undersized, she had a hard time just closing that distance. Yeah. And uh, like you said, the straight punches were getting through, which is something that Loma definitely is going to have to look out for as she starts rising up. It doesn't take, you don't have to be some like dud level striker to get good at throwing straight punches. And it's one of the fundamental things everybody learns in a striking class. But like you mentioned, it's probably one of the more underrated techniques that you see in MMA. And when you do see it, even from people who are not necessarily like strikers, it works because a lot of people, even MMA fighters, don't necessarily expect it a lot. And the straight punches, you know, if you're coming from a Muay Thai base, because I know this for a fact, I'm like, as the Muay Thai person, Muay Thai fighters tend to, uh, well, at least the Muay Thai fighters who I have known to want to make the transition in MMA, they tend to overestimate their striking. And sometimes that goes both ways. Sometimes they overestimate their striking, thinking that as long as I'm better than somebody on the feet, then there's no way they can take me down. And then when they get taken down, they pretty much lost the fight. Or, yeah, there's no way anybody in this my division can give me issues on the feet, which is bad either way. And if somebody has a decent grasp of basics, you always got to be careful of that. No matter, you know, doesn't matter how experienced you are, you know, for four ounce gloves, even in, you know, it's a common saying, it's very cliche, but all it takes is one punch and it becomes very, it becomes easier when those punches are straight punches. Actually, going back to Prohaska, even though he looks so wild, and he throws a variety of different kind of punches, even from his crouch stance. When he throws a punch from there, I noticed that he often threw it with the thumb up to make his punch really straight. Yeah. So it just comes straight at you with no turn. He doesn't even corkscrew it. So that's another reason why it's hard to see because it's coming straight at you. It's coming up towards you, but it's coming up and straight. So I think a lot of people can't tell how quickly it's coming at them because it's not like... Prohaska is the fastest fighter. It's just that he messes you up with his timing because he moves slow, slow, slow. Then he bursts and he comes straight. So the shot gets to you quicker than you expected, which is part of why he's able to travel distance so quickly because the way he moves is slow, slow, slow. And then he covers ground quickly because it's almost like a mirage where he tricks you into thinking he moves faster than he does because all your relative bar to compare is how slowly he was moving before. So I think the same way with Hughes is she was throwing that one-two with no excessive movements, no bend to it, just straight down. Aaron Alday, what did you think about this fight? Oh man, the thing about this fight, the thing about this fight that impressed me the most 
And this is from someone who has not watched a whole ton of Muay Thai, just pure Muay Thai. It was just Luke Bumi's sense of body weight in the clinch. Just her exact sense of like when Hughes would go to throw like a knee or something and she would just dump her on the ground like it was nothing. Because she just happened to have her weight like in the wrong spot. And it was just wild to watch. I had never seen, I think they said she had like nine takedowns. All of them were from the clinch pretty much. There were no shots. That was definitely the thing that struck me the most about this fight. Though I did also notice, and the thing, yeah, like Jodeci is saying, the thing I think will give Bukbumi trouble rising up the ranks is those straight punches. Also, being undersized for the division, yeah, makes straight punches a little bit more of a problem. Um, Though I feel like she has the tools to solve that problem, you know, even without a 105 division. And who knows, one day there could be a 105 division. What was also impressive besides her throws from the clinch is that even when Hughes had the superior clinch position, meaning like she had double underhooks or had her pinned up against the fence, Luke Boomi was still able to throw the better, harder knees. She didn't win the top wrestling battle for position sometimes, but she was able to win the battle of hips and where to center her weight so that she was always able to throw the harder knees. And also the way she would not just throw the knees straight up, but she threw knees from every angle to always maximize where she hit. And when she did hit, you knew it was bad because of the way it just bounced off. It's minor, but that little difference tells you how hard she's hitting because she's throwing it not mechanically, but like a whip, even from that close of a distance. So it just bounces off the stomach and then hits so hard, she just has to let her legs go slack and it comes right back down for her to throw it again. So it's like a split second where she puts some power into it. And then in that split second, it hits like a whip. You know, they talk about that mechanic when they're teaching you how to kick, which is a lot easier because you have a longer distance and a longer lever to create that whip effect. And they even talk about that with kicks in the UFC that you want to ideally hit like a whip. All right. This was fun as usual. Any of you have stuff you want to plug and Twitter handles you want to give out? Uh, well, as far as my Twitter handle, let me go back, make sure I got it right so I can spell it out for y'all. Y'all want to follow me on Twitter? Even though I'm not a grappler, if you guys know the reference, you know the reference. Uh, you can follow me at Grappler Ronnie. Uh, grappler and then R-O-N-N-Y. If you don't know, it's a reference to uh, the OG Baki anime, Grappler Baki. <laughs> Which is the best one. It really oh, is. yeah. Well, I didn't even understand that reference when the movie came out because it's called Grappler Baki, but he mostly did striking. <laughs> yeah, that's why I did it too. I think his whole base style at that time was karate. He was learning styles as he was going. So he was still at the karate phase. You know, it's interesting. There's more grappling. There's another one called a uh, Garoden. There's more grappling in that than Baki, in my opinion. My homie had like the Garoden video game from back in so the day. <laughs> so, so much fun. I've never played another video game like it because you can actually simultaneously hit each other. <laughs> yeah, it's mom- it's <laughs> momentum based. It's not like health bar. It's momentum based. Like if you're yeah. overwhelming somebody, you can want to fight in like 10 seconds, but it's mostly back and forth. All right, all day. Yeah, I wrote a preview of this fight. You can go back and read it and see if I know what I'm talking about um, on the Southpaw Patreon and Ko-Fi pages. Um, Both are for free, though. The article's for free on both of those, though. And my Twitter is, I made this to Stan. Um, Yeah, spelled 
conventionally. Sam, S C A M. I don't know. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, spell it. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes so people can just uh, click on it. <laughs> Chunk, did you have a Twitter handle? Um, no, I don't have a Twitter handle. Um, Emotional Support Chunk is a uh, Southpaw Discord exclusive. So uh, <laughs> sign up for the Patreon if you uh, want to connect. Yeah. Please sign up to the Patreon, actually. Please do that, y'all, if you're listening to this. <laughs> for real. So Chunk is like new guy. He's a Patreon exclusive. You have to go to the $4 tier to get access to them. (laughs) All right. Thanks, y'all. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.